picked up on the sovereign theme in those hymns. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I trust and pray you do, let's turn to the book of Esther, chapter 1. I've entitled this, The King and His Party, verses 1 through 9. But we could just as easily have said, as the end of verse 8 says, let each man do as he wants, let each man do as he pleases, do as he desires. So the king and his party, verse 1 of Esther chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And we'll stop there for now. Uh, the king and his party. The greatness of man over the millennia, over the centuries, and the greatness of humanity has always been measured in terms of power, or money, or control, even in massive displays of luxury, like we find in chapter 1 here of Esther. I'm not going to recap the introduction that I gave a few weeks ago to the book, uh, because I, if you need to find out more about the introduction to Esther, then you can quite easily go back and listen to that. But I want you to notice in this passage, first of all, just two descriptions in verse 4 that are given of this king, Ahasuerus, this king of Persia. It said, number one, he showed the riches of his royal glory. So he made a great show. He put on a demonstration of his glory, his royal glory. And secondly, it says the splendor and pomp of his greatness was on display also, and not just for a short period of time, but for many days. Precisely, the text tells us, 180 days. So for these 180 days or six months, 
what he did was to demonstrate, to put on display the greatness and the glory of Ahasuerus, of the man who was in sovereign control of a very, very powerful kingdom, the kingdom that ruled the world at that time, the kingdom of Persia. So Ahasuerus has one intent, or one intention. His mind is made up as to what he shall do before all the people of his kingdom, simply a display of his greatness, a display of his power, a display of his glory. Nebuchadnezzar had done the same thing, you remember, once before, by coming out on the balcony of uh, the Babylonian palace and standing there and admiring the massive city that was before him, the great city of Babylon, which he then went on to describe to himself and his power and his glory. Is not this Babylon that I have made? And of course, he took glory for himself. And as you all remember, of course, in Daniel, uh, God stripped him of his power, stripped him of his sovereignty, stripped him of his greatness, stripped him of his glory and reduced him to the level of a beast chained to a tree stump in a field for seven years until he should come to know and recognize that only God is sovereign and only God gets the glory and gets the praise. So when any man, and it has been the case throughout the centuries, ascribes to themselves greatness and glory, you can rest assured that time will pass by and you will discover that they are no more and that God continues to still be the same on His throne. So tyrants and dictators and kings and potentates and all the powerful and all the great of the earth rise up, demonstrate themselves, parade themselves, and then fade into nothing because God still is on the throne. Great lesson to learn there is never look to man as an example of that which lasts, but look to God and His glory and His greatness as something that is eternal. So this king, ancient king, Ahasuerus, he is not above arrogance, is he? He is not above pride in promoting himself. In fact, what he does in chapter 1 of Esther is just simply self-promotion. And isn't that the great trouble that all men and women have themselves. The promotion of self. Because in the end, what do men and women really have but nothing except themselves? And so they would promote themselves, parade themselves, put themselves out there as somebody important or somebody great. And of course, soon time will tell that they come to nothing. This is Ahasuerus. Uh, I doubt if you were to go out into the schools of our time, uh, or I, I'm pretty certain if you went out there and asked them about King Ahasuerus, they would ask you, who? Who is he? What is he? And so on, right? Well, Esther begins by introducing us to this man who is going to go on and demonstrate to his citizens how great and how powerful he is. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name that we have of this king. His name is Xerxes, and Xerxes is the Greek translation of his Persian name, which sounds a little bit like ex she Shasha. Very difficult tongue twister, right? Xerxes is the Greek translation of Ahasuerus. Josephus and the Septuagint, by the way, make an error, make a mistake, 
because they ascribe the name or they believe this to be Artaxerxes. Now we read about Artaxerxes in the book of Ezra because he was the Ezra, the, uh, he was the emperor, uh, emperor, the king of Persia during Ezra's time and Nehemiah's time. But he is the son of Ahasuerus or the son of Xerxes. Most of the events of the book of Esther center around this king and the feasts that are given and the court of uh, Ahasuerus. In fact, there's a lot of political intrigue that goes on in the court of Ahasuerus. Court officials come, like Haman. They come in demanding this or asking of that or seeking to get new laws made, royal edicts given, and so on. That will affect the nation. That will, that will promote their own causes. All takes place in the court, in the palace of King Ahasuerus. And just like, I suppose, all the governments of this world, in their places of power, decisions are made that affect the lives not only of citizens, but the lives of citizens of other countries. We have examples of that today in our world, right? Some decision is made in the Kremlin and an invasion takes place in another country, the country of Ukraine. Men and women in power are always making these kinds of decisions. Matters of state, matters of life and death, because a simple decision can mean the loss of life of millions of people. This is the court of Ahasuerus. With the flick of a scepter, a golden scepter, he can say yea or nay, death or life. He can, with the stamp of a royal ring, establish power and control that applies to the extent of his kingdom from India to Ethiopia. That what the king says, what he puts into law, is for all of his people and for all of his kingdom. Ahasuerus is the king of Persia, a mighty kingdom, a powerful kingdom. In fact, he has begun to reign in the year 486 B.C. and his reign ends 21 years later when he is assassinated by the captain of his bodyguard. Uh, so he only reigns for 21 years to 465. So we can date Ahasuerus from history. We can look at history and determine when he ruled and we can look at the Bible and see also some of those connections. For example, Esther is of help to us regarding the reign of Ahasuerus. If you look in verse 3, it says in the third year of his reign. So if he started to reign in 486 B.C., then this is 483 B.C. And then if you go to chapter 2 and you look at verse 16, uh, it says that when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So four more years before Esther gets into the court or into the room of Ahasuerus, 479 B.C. We are introduced to the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, uh, who reigned from 559 to 530 B.C., it was Cyrus the Great, who was truly a great Persian king, who permitted the Jewish exiles in Babylon and then subsequently in Persia to return uh, to Jerusalem in the year 536 B.C. In 538-539, uh, Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede had entered the city of Babylon and overthrown the Babylonian kingdom and set up the kingdom <clears throat> of the Medes and the Persians. 
And it was under Cyrus then, who having come to power three years earlier, in 536 later then, gives the order to Zerubbabel that he can go back and he can start to rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem. And of course we all know, we read in our Bibles in the book of Ezra and the Second Chronicles about the return of Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest as they returned uh, to Jerusalem to make some start to rebuild the temple. That's 536. Sixteen years later, <clears throat> excuse me, not much work has been done on the temple foundation. And so it's going to take the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, <clears throat> which you read about in Ezra chapter 3, verse 6, and, and through chapter 6. It's going to take their ministry of encouragement, of faith building, to get Zerubbabel and the people to continue to build. And they will do that because they've been receiving some opposition, and that's why for 16 years they had backed off the building of the temple. We know from the Bible that Ezra also made a return in the year 458 BC under the king Artaxerxes, the king who is the son of our Ahasuerus. And not only that, but Nehemiah returned some 13 years after Ezra in 445 BC under the same Ahasuerus. In fact, Nehemiah was the cupbearer who tasted the wine of king Artaxerxes, the son of Ahasuerus or the son of Xerxes. The father of Ahasuerus was Darius I, and Darius I uh, was the king who permitted, in 522, uh, reigned from 522 all the way down to 486, when Ahasuerus, his son, ascended the throne. He was the king, Darius I, who encouraged or said, yes, the royal decree is that you can rebuild the temple, and Zerubbabel, of course, continued to rebuild the temple with Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, encouraging them. This is biblical history. This is, this is what we know from the Bible. And so the Bible takes the history of the world, takes the reigns of kings, kings of Persia, kings of Babylon, and their history is interwoven with God's people and what God is doing in His purposes. So that we discover then that history, the history of the world, the history of man, the history of men and women is not outside the history of God, but is within the history of God. In fact, is the history of God. And sometimes we tend to see that what happens in the world, well, that's Satan's rule and Satan's domain and Satan's power. Let me assure you that King Ahasuerus, who is under certainly uh, satanic power and control, is nevertheless totally under the sovereign power of God, as all the rulers of any nation throughout history have been. And so the Persian Empire is this vast empire, is this massive empire, which will come to an end in about 333 or 331 BC when Alexander the Great ascends to the throne after his father Philip II of Macedon, uh, who began this Greek uh, rise to power and then it is solidified under Alexander the Great. So the Greeks will become the greatest kingdom after the Medes and the Persians and of course Alexander the Great reigns until 320 BC and then his kingdom is divided uh, into four of his generals and you read about that for example in Daniel chapter 8 and so you have uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the kings of the north and the kings of the, the south as you read in Daniel chapter 11 and so on, a divided kingdom, and then ultimately the Roman Empire will come to power. 
So when we read the events of this book, Esther, we are reading events that occur before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, perhaps some 20, 30 years before. I don't know if Ezra or Nehemiah were alive during Esther's time, or whether Esther, after the death of Ahasuerus, was alive herself during the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. But within that framework of 486 down to 445, when we read about Nehemiah under Artaxerxes, perhaps Esther uh, lives during this time. Will you notice in verse 1 the extent of the kingdom of Ahasuerus? I mean, it says, in the days of Ahasuerus, who is he, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So here you have this massive kingdom that is measured by the way east to west, or west to east, whatever you decide, from India to Ethiopia, a massive kingdom. And of course it's divided, it says, into 127 provinces. And those provinces, each of those 127 provinces, are governed by what we know and what the Bible talks about as satraps. So, a satrap is a governor of a satrapy or a province, a region uh, that is under his control. Each one of those satraps or governors of a province is appointed by the king himself, by King Ahasuerus. Now why did he do that, or why does it ha exist like that? It is like that because of the, the great vastness of the empire, and the need, of course, to uh, have an efficient method of governing and ruling such a large kingdom and such large power. And India to Ethiopia is truly a vast distance to cover or to reign over. How does one man sitting in Susa, there he sits, reign over such a vast kingdom? Well, he does it through these governors that are out there in the 127 provinces. So what we have here in the very opening verse is a description of the Persian Empire, or I could put it like this, the kingdom of man at its greatest height. The kingdom of man at glo in glory and power. And India to Ethiopia, of course, shows us also that Xerxes has consolidated his kingdom that he controls actually what goes on in all of those provinces spread from India to Ethiopia. Now these governors or these satraps over these provinces, they are responsible, of course, to collect tax, to collect tribute from whoever, enemies that are overcome. They are responsible to raise the army, to increase the army of Persia, and they are required to establish prosperity and peace for the empire. So Xerxes has appointed them with the particular uh, purpose of consolidating his power by doing these various things which they then engage in uh, all the time. That is what, by the way, empires have always done, haven't it? haven't they? Empires are in the business of building themselves into greater empires. So men and women can stand in a plain called Shinar long, long ago, and as they stand there and they play in that plain, they come up with the idea of let's build a tower to heaven. Let's build something that's great. Manifest the glory and the majesty of man. And you know that as you go through archaeological discoveries, whether it's in South America or uh, in India or in China, you have all of these discoveries that simply point to man's attempt to reach power, to reach glory, 
to become like God Himself. And this is the history of the world. More recently, in our own time, of course, the British Empire ruled such a world, did it not, from China to India to South Africa to, to North America and so on. A massive empire governed by just a little piece of territory, England. And how did England do it? England engages in trade of opium and tea, the good stuff that we drink, right? Those are the, those are the, the, the imports and the exports from one country to another within the kingdom that provide money and provide power so that a, an army can be established in all of those outposts. And not only that, but a British navy can be built that, built that rules the oceans and the seas. And of course the French are doing the same, and the Dutch are doing the same, and the Spaniards are doing the same, and that war they go with each other, each trying to secure the world as their domain, as their empire. This is Xerxes in his own time, building an empire for himself, building glory for himself. Now, I think there, there is, it would appear, some uncertainty as to the validity of or the accuracy of precisely 127 provinces in existence. We don't know exactly how many there are. The Bible tells us 127. I'm quite happy to accept 127, even though in history there doesn't seem to be some indication of such a, a vast number. And in fact, according to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, Darius the Mede, he set over his kingdom 120 satraps, which in and of itself is a, a vast amount of people. So when I look at those numbers, it's, it just seems to imply to me that those numbers might change if territory changes hands, or if there's a change in governorship, whatever it might be, or a re-adopting of lines of territory and so on, or borders, whatever it might be. So ruling... An ancient empire like Babylon or like Persia or like uh, Greece, of course, uh, is made up of these, these many different peoples. I mean, we are in America and we call ourselves Americans. We are made up of, of so many different peoples, ethnic backgrounds, so many varieties. We come from different countries around the world, but yet we call ourselves just one people call ourselves Americans. Well, if you lived in Xerxes' kingdom, whether you lived in Ethiopia or India, you would have called yourself Persian because you were under a Persian dominion and a Persian king. So to rule such an extensive empire of diverse people is no easy matter, is it? It requires immense skill and ability to hold people together. And history seems to affirm that Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was an effective ruler, was able to hold men together and hold the kingdom together. So when we, come, when we have this opening description of his power and the extent of his glory, we discover then that in verse 2, Ahasuerus is not out there in the kingdom, but he is home in Susa. He's in, at home in the capital, and so verse 2 says, In those days, when Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave the feast that he gave for 180 days. So he is in town, he's uh, about business, he's not out there in the provinces putting down some rebellion or another. No, he is back home, he's in the palace, 
and he is ruling. In fact, the text tells us he is sitting on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. The idea that he is sitting implies that he is governing and that he is ruling. People come to him for decisions, he makes decisions. Holds out the golden scepter, withholds the golden scepter. People's lives are on a whim, at the whim, or on a, uh, a short stick at the end of what uh, Ahasuerus can do and might and might not do. We read about Susa as the citadel. Persia, the kingdom of Persia, had four capitals. We read about Ecbatana in Daniel and in Ezra, chapter 6. We read about Babylon and Persepolis, and we read about Susa. And we discover here that this is where Xerxes is. He's in Susa. Susa is the winter capital of the Persian Empire. So the winter palace is in Susa. Daniel, you remember, served for a time in this very city, in the city of Susa, Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. And this is exactly the city where Nehemiah served King Artaxerxes as his cupbearer in the city of Susa. So Ahasuerus is sitting on his throne in Susa, and he decides, notice in verse 3, to give a party, to give a feast for all his officials and his servants. Now, the one thing we do know about Esther is that feasts, and you remember I gave you an outline that is built around the feasts of, of the book of Esther, the feasts of Ahasuerus, the feasts of Vashti, the feasts of uh, Esther herself, and so on. And so the book of Esther is built around this concept, the theme of these feasts or parties that are held and that are given. So feasting and drinking feature quite prominently in Esther as a recurring theme. In fact, every time a feast is given or mentioned in Esther, it signifies or signals some sort of change in direction. Something is going to happen. Something is about to change. The introduction then of verse 1 and verse 2 is the pretext for the feast or the pretext for the party. The greatness of Persia. The greatness of Ahasuerus, of Xerxes, provides the opportunity to celebrate with all the important people of his kingdom. So will you notice in verse 3, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast. And for whom did he give the feast? For all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, namely 180 days. So notice that the feast is for the greatest, all his officials. It is for the least, all his servants. And the elite of the empire, verse 3, are invited, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces. Now it has been said that in the year 483 BC that Xerxes gathered together a great war council in Susa to make plans about an invasion into Greece. His father Darius had uh, previously invaded Greek, Greece trying to overthrow the Athenians, the, the city of Athens, and had failed and had been defeated by doing that. So Ahasuerus is making plans to set up his army, gather his army, and he has all of his army and all of his officials, 
all the important people in Susa in this first chapter. So much so that you notice in verse 4, he shows to all the commanders, to all these people, the pomp and the power of Persia in his party. Now why does he do that? Because he's trying to bolster his prestige amongst his army, which is out there in 127 uh, provinces. And he maintains this celebration, this feast, you'll notice, for 180 days. Now, I don't think he has all the governors of all the provinces at one time in Susa, but he has a rotation system. He brings them in and sends them out and brings them in. He's got a party going on for 180 days. Doesn't matter when you come in, the same thing will be going on in that six-month period. And this suggests, of course, that there's this rotation, I think, that's going on between the governors as they come and the military leaders from the provinces, so that they're not all absent from ruling the empire. You can't just abandon the empire for six months. So they come in and they go out. I think at the same time or uh, on different occasions throughout the 180 days. And he, doesn't he put something quite magnificent? I mean, uh, it's quite something to maintain a feast for 180 days in which, uh, which time you maintain the demonstration of your glory and your power and your prestige. I mean, it's one thing to give a feast for a night, isn't it? So we might have at the White House some party that goes on for the night. But there's no ways we have a party for seven days. And there's no ways we have a party for two weeks or 180 days at all. It is quite something, an expense to maintain such an extravagance. Verse 4 talks about the riches of His royal glory, the splendor and the pomp of His greatness, day after day after day, on display before all the people that come before Him. Why is that? Because it's all designed to impress not just his people themselves, but to impress his army and his nobles and his governors of the kingdom. It's the Greek philosopher or geographer, historian Herodotus, who tells us and confirms that Xerxes held a feast and gave a great speech of his military intentions towards the kingdom of Greece. So Xerxes told them, and this is what he said, he said, it is my intention to bridge the Hellespont and to lead an army through Europe to Greece so that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. I will never rest until I have taken and burned Athens. So by showing the army and the generals and the nobles and the governors the power and the wealth and the majesty of his kingdom in verse 4, he is declaring to them that I have the power to reward you and to keep you in business. I have the power to maintain you and keep you in your provinces. And the, governor show, uh, the Bible shows us, doesn't it, the combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. You know, you often read about that in Daniel, right? The Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. Those are two different peoples, but they are ethnically related. They are diverse kingdoms. They are of one nation and another nation, the Persians and the Medes. It was the Medes, by the way, who under Darius had joined forces with Cyrus of Persia to defeat the Babylonians in 586. Uh, sorry, in 538, 539 BC. In fact, the mother of Cyrus the Great, who's a Persian, was a Mede. And so there's this relationship between the Persians and the Medes. The Medes themselves had previously joined the Babylonians 
under the father of Nebuchadnezzar to help overthrow the Assyrians. So there are all these alliances that are going on in the ancient world, the ancient kingdom, and of course we read about the destruction of Assyria or Nineveh in 612 BC. And you shouldn't be surprised by that because Jonah the prophet was sent by God to make a pronouncement, a prophecy against Nineveh that unless they repent, within 40 days God is going to destroy them. And what did they do when Jonah preached them? They repented. They believed. But what did that repentance mean? It meant that God simply delayed His judgment and His punishment upon the Assyrians for about 150 years, when Nahum the prophet, suddenly in his time, begins to speak about the imminent judgment that God was going to bring upon the Assyrian kingdom. And how did that happen? Well, the Babylonians are used by God in 612 to overthrow the Ninevites, with the Nineveh being the capital of the Assyrian empire. So, when the Bible says here, now this is what you need to see, when it says in verse 3, the army of Persia and Media, you notice the change from the Medes and the Persians to the Persians and the Medes. And why is that? The reason for that is Persia by now is the dominant power and not the Medes. So, Persia is the kingdom that is... Uh, in power. In, in other words, this is an historically accurate statement about the Persian government and Persian empire. It is the dominant power in Esther's time, in Esther's day. So why is that important? Because God's word is accurate. Because God's word can quite easily reflect what you can read in history and read in the world, it records and it mingles with human history that is written from human perspective, like Herodotus, the, the Greek philosopher, implying and showing us that there are no contradictions with what God's Word says and what we discover from history. In fact, archaeology has proven over and over and over again to, to prove the veracity of Holy Scripture. I've just been reading, I think I was telling Jason uh, about the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which were discovered in supposedly around 1947-1948 in Israel, or in the Palestine near the Jordan, near the Dead Sea, in Qumran. And of course, here's a Bedouin boy, <laughs> some 14 or 15 years of age, who is out with his sheep in the desert region. And he sees a, a dark spot on the hillside, which is of course the entrance to a cave, and he goes there, but he doesn't want to go into the cave, so he picks up a stone and throws it in, and he hears a, a jaw breaking, and doesn't know what that is, and so the next day he brings a friend, and the two of them go in, and they discover these potteries, pottery line there, these jars, and they notice that there are things in the jars, scrolls wrapped in leather, that have been in existence now for uh, 2,000 years, and so on. You discover when they finally work it all out that what you have in those Dead Sea Scrolls is the full text in Hebrew of Isaiah the prophet. The, la the, the most available up-to-date manuscript at that time was from the year 900 or so. So this is a thousand years before in full, in Hebrew, the text of Scripture. So that what is discovered on a hillside near the Dead Sea by a Bedouin Arab is actually of vital importance simply verifying the accuracy, the truth of God's Word. That the prophet Isaiah is one prophet. 
not divided into two prophets or three prophets like Deutero-Isaiah or Trito-Isaiah. Just one single prophet, the son of Amos, as Isaiah himself uh, reminds us or calls himself. So we learn from these verses, simply when we read our Old Testaments, that God is, uh, and the Word of God is accurate, even though we read about all kinds of matters in history and may know about such things, so that the Bible does not contradict, and there's no contradiction within it. And what does that mean for you and for me tonight? means I have confidence in God's Word, can trust God's Word. That even though it's recording some events that happened 2,500 years ago, there is no contradiction in the Word of God when it records those events. And when you read about those events from a human perspective, from human historians, that there is a marriage together of those events. So when this great feast of 180 days is over, you'll notice verse 5 tells us, that he gave another feast. I mean, how many feasts must you have? Right? He gave another feast for everybody. Every citizen in the capital, in Susa, that lasted for seven days. And not to be outdone, verse 9 says that Queen Vashti gave a feast herself for all the women in the palace. By the way, these are all the women of the harem who just cannot go out and about and walk the streets. Okay? But are confined to the palace. These are the women of Ahasuerus, and Queen Vashti is number one. Well, she gives a feast herself, not to be outdone by her husband, by Ahasuerus. Xerxes, from, his, from a historical point of view, gets the support that he needs, and many of his people in the second feast, the seven-day feast, are people who probably served during the Feast of 180 Days, bringing in food, bringing in drinks, taking out food, cleaning up, and, you know, the feast just keeps going on and on and on. Many of those people, citizens of Susa, probably served in the 180-day feast, and now Xerxes or Ahasuerus has made a feast for them, and they can enjoy themselves, and they get to celebrate. Notice it says that the feast takes place in the court, of the garden of the palace. And look at verses 6 and 7, the sheer opulence of Persia. First of all, the decorations are magnificent. Verse 6, right? So there was white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold, silver and a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. The decorations are magnificent. They're five star. Five star. Now, you know, you can drive down the road and see a motel on the side of the road, and you probably have no idea what star rating that motel is, right? It doesn't look too good, it looks shabby, it's probably dangerous, probably not even half a star. But then you can go downtown and come to the Ritz Hotel, and this is five star, I suppose, by comparison. We all recognize the distinctions between luxury and beauty and all of these provisions. That's what Ahasuerus just puts out there for his people, the very best. They can just sit back, enjoy the world's power, the most powerful king in the world. They can enjoy his generosity. They can eat and they can drink as much as they like without any restraint. And that's, of course, verse 7, right? The supplies of drinks are never-ending. Now, if you've ever been to parties for companies and things like that or business, you discover that 
You can just go and help yourself to a drink whenever you want. It's available. But this is, this is drinking of a magnitude that we cannot comprehend. Not only is it drinking by the citizens, but certainly by Ahasuerus himself. Just no restraint, no restrictions, just libation, just drink and drink and drink in the setting of absolute luxury and opulence. May I suggest to you, that is all the world offers. That's all it has to offer. All it has to offer is a physical opulence and a physical luxury. But it can never offer you spiritual change. It must offer you something that is, in their estimation, better and better and better and better. And I suppose the kings and queens of this world seek to outdo each other, one another, in terms of what they can provide for visiting dignitaries and so on. That's Ahasuerus. That's all he has. He has a kingdom, and he has this opulence, and he has this power, and he has this prestige, and he has drinks available. That's what the world offers. That's all it has to offer. And you'll notice it never changes. From century to century to century, it never changes. And what does that teach us? The heart of man is still the same and is bound by the same sins and the same problems. So people come and people go as they visit the party. For seven days they can drink as much as they like. And in the ancient world, when kings had absolute power over citizenry, what a privilege to be able to just be free and enjoy and do what you please. Live how you want. In one sense, from a Gentile perspective, this is the book of Judges which speaks of the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. This is the Gentile world who does as they please whenever they want and lives in such a way. So again, for seven days, Xerxes shows us his power and his wealth and his glory. It has been said that when Alexander the Great traveled nearly a century later on his way and came to Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, that he was said to be absolutely dazzled by the incredible Persian wealth that he discovered. In fact, he found four, uh, I should say, 40,000 talents of gold and silver. That's 12,000 tons. He found 9,000 talents of minted coins, about 270 tons. He was said to be absolutely blown away, if I can use modern parlance, by what he saw. The, the incredible wealth of the Persian kingdom. That's the might and that's the power of Xerxes and the power of his successors, Artaxerxes, all the way down to Darius III, who was defeated finally by Alexander the Great. And there's a lesson, I think, from Xerxes' perspective and point of view, that if you are loyal and obedient to Xerxes, then you get your share in his wealth, in his generosity. But if you cross him, you perish, you die, punishment awaits. This is the world of Esther. This is the world of this book that we're trying to understand and to read about what happened in it. Now having said that, this is what we know. We know what we read. We can back up what we read by connection to history in the world. So we know these things. But what you might not know 
and is not here in the text of chapter 1 is that four years later, from 483 BC to so 479, which the text talks about in chapter 2, in the, the years, uh, the, the, that uh, seventh year, here's what you might not know. When Xerxes comes back in 479 from Athens, where he was defeated, he lost. So he had made all these plans to achieve glory and greatness. He has secured the support of his army and his generals and his provinces. And so he makes an attempt, like his father, Darius I, to overthrow the Athenians, and he was defeated. And the royal coffers are virtually depleted by the action of Xerxes in trying to overthrow the Greeks and the Athenians. Now here's the point. Whoever wrote Esther knew that. Whoever wrote Esther was fully aware of Xerxes' failure. But the author, whether whoever it is, he or she, whoever the author is of Esther, chose to display Xerxes in glory and in power. When the reality is, by the time the book of Esther is written, Xerxes has no power and has no glory. and can do nothing about his loss. And so anybody who reads the book of Esther would be familiar, if they lived at that time, with the failure of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. So that means when you go back to verse 1 and 2 and so on, and you read those opening lines about the glory of Xerxes, you discover that it is actually fiction, fickle, not certain, unstable, unsure. In other words, the kingdoms of this world are not fixed and permanent, but they are shifting and always changing. And it reminds us that history, human history, the history of this world, is under the sovereign purposes and control of a sovereign God. And not only this, but the book of Esther reveals to us that God's people, in such a turbulent world, in such a changeable, changing world, are always ultimately safe and secure, always. In such a world. That's why, who cares really ultimately what happens in our own country today? There are going to be rulers rising up and changing, living and dying. They're going to come and go, but God's people are always safe. No matter how bad it may get in America, and it's getting pretty bad, but no matter how bad it may get, God's people are always safe because God Himself is in charge. And in control. Now you can either believe that or not. Frankly, if you don't believe it, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry. You live in fear. You live afraid. You live consumed by whatever's going on in the world. And I feel sorry for you. That's not living under the sovereignty of God. That's living in fear of man. You could have lived in Xerxes' time in Esther's day and lived in absolute fear, and you would have. Because Xerxes was not just like a modern type ruler. He was ruthless. And just at the flick of a finger you lost your life. So no. Here we are confronted by the reality that some people are willing to trust in chariots and in horses. But we, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God forever and forever. And they collapse and they fall. But we rise, the psalmist says, and stand upright. God's people are never defeated because they belong to God. So God may discipline His people. 
God may send them into exile like He did. God may do those things, but He never abandons them. He never destroys them completely. He always talks about His people saving them, a remnant. And there's always been a remnant in history of God's people. So what lessons, apart from what I've suggested, can we learn from this? Well, first of all, cast your mind over the history of the world. Think back to the glory and the power of Egypt. And then look at Egypt today. If you want to see the glory and Egypt of today, I mean of the ancient world, you have to go and look at ruins. Right? You look at ruins. You look at pyramids. You look at these things that exist from long ago. But one time it was the power of the world. Abraham knew it. Isaac was said to, don't you go down to Egypt. It was the power. Joseph knew all about Egypt, right? And he never lost sight once of his homeland. You take my bones when I die and you bury them back in the promised land. Because this is not my home. Though he was the ruler of all of Egypt. Think of Egypt. Think of the Assyrians. Wicked, violent, we're told. Where are the Assyrians? Oh, yes, their descendants exist in Iran and Persia or Iraq today, but those are nothing compared to the Assyrians who ruled the world. And think of the Babylonians like Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, Belshazzar. Where are these men? Where is their kingdom today? It lies in ruins. In fact, according to the Bible, Babylon shall never be rebuilt. Never shall be inhabited. So you can go to modern-day Iraq and visit Babylon, and it is ruins. In fact, the closest you get is Baghdad. And that's nothing compared to Babylon. It's no more. Or think about Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Where is he? He died such, at such a young age. All the world under his power. The language of the world changes to become Greek. And all the benefits of Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom, where is it? It is perishing. It does not stand against the wisdom of God. Think of the Medes and the Persians who have come and gone. And think of the Romans. Think of the Caesars. Where are they? Where are these kingdoms of this great world? They have all had a hand in trying to destroy the people of God. And every single one of them has failed. Because you cannot destroy God's people. No kingdom of the world can do that. They all fail. So what do we see in the world? What do I see? I see depravity. I see the depravity of man on full display. It's the same world tonight as it was in Xerxes' day. You know why? Because it's the same heart. It's unchanged. It's deceitful and it deceives always. And it's the same troubles and it's the same sins. Man wants luxury. He wants to take it easy. He wants to drink. He wants to do as he pleases. He wants to have freedom from restraint. That's the same tonight as it was in Xerxes' day. He wanted that liberty and that freedom. Same problems, same sins in the heart of men for thousands of years, unchanged. Because man is in rebellion against God. Whether he's in a Persian kingdom or in America of tonight. But the church of Jesus exists and it continues and it shall continue until God brings us home to glory, right? So the kingdoms of the world, from my perspective, 
are in the hands of God, and I have nothing to fear, and neither do you, dear brother and sister. Number two, shouldn't I then look forward to the glory of my city that is to come? I talked about that this morning, right? Revelation 21. Shouldn't I be filled with hope based on what awaits me? How can I be a Christian complaining in this world about all the changes and, and turbulence that I see when I know what's coming? In fact, faith is never complaining. Faith is always believing. Faith is never fearful like saying, God cannot do it. No, faith says, God can do it. God will bring me home. God will bring me to glory. So what are you? Are you fearful? Or are you filled with faith? Because that's what we're going to see in the book of Esther, right? It is faith that ultimately will triumph. That this belief in God. So we look forward and we're filled with hope. Because suffering in this world and affliction in this world and physical problems and tribulation and persecution can never thwart our future with Jesus. Never. Whatever disease you have, you cannot extend your life one second beyond what Jesus' time has determined for you. And our entire world is, is all about medicine and extending your life. And people are wrapped up with their physical life. How can I live longer? How can I just keep going? Instead, we're keeping people alive that naturally should have died a long time ago. Naturally graciously, in a good way. And now they're kept on machines and by pills and tablets, by doctors. It's big business in our world, isn't it? No. Esther's going to remind us that if you're trusting those things, you are not trusting God. Thirdly, notice today that even today, still today, the world displays its power. I mean, China, Russia, North Korea, they have victory parades through the cities, right? All their might, tanks, ballistic missiles, whatever it is. They've been doing it for quite a long time. The Germans did it in the 1930s, right? All a display of man's power, man's glory. And listen, state-sponsored atheism, by the way, has never yet triumphed. And neither has, by the way, an utter dependence on capitalism, which I believe in, by the way. But I'm not secure because of capitalism. In fact, I find in the world there's a lot of insecurity or insecurity, right? At this very moment, capitalism rules, but we're very uncertain, can't even buy baby formula. So much for our capitalism, right? And so this is the world we live in and find ourselves in. And let us also remember that the power and the glory and the might of the land of the free and the home of the brave is still the power of the world and not the power of Jesus. The power of the world is what we are living in and among. Do not trust it. Only the cross has the power to save us and to keep us and only the wisdom of God and the power of God is the person of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. What are you trusting? What do you talk about most? Do you talk about what's happening out there in the world? How topsy-turvy it is? How upside-down it is? How fearful you are? Or do you talk about Jesus who has saved you by His grace and who's going to bring you to His glory? Not the glory of an Ahaz Uerus, but the glory of the Son of God. 
and there's no comparison. When we shall sit down with him in his kingdom and eat and drink at his table forever and forever and forever in communion, in beauty, and in glory. It's the cross that does that. And Psalm 2 reminds us that when God looked down upon the kingdoms of this world in their antipathy towards His Son, in their rage against Jesus, that when God looked at them, He laughed at them. He laughed at them. He laughed at Egypt. He laughed at the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And He laughed at the Medes and the Persians. And where are they? They are destroyed and no longer around. So what is God doing? Do you know how God works? He works in your life. Do you know how God changes history? Your life. You put all the believers, the church of Jesus Christ together. How is God working? Through His people. How does He do that? He changes them to be like His Son. Because do you know what Jesus did? He changed the world. He died. He gave His life. He sacrificed Himself. And look at the outcome. Here we are tonight. The people of Christ. The people of God. And what is God doing actually in heaven? <laughs> he is fulfilling His covenant obligations to His beloved Son. Which includes you and me. And if God fulfills His covenant obligations, which I know He does, it will happen. It will come to pass. To oppose Jesus the King is defeat. To revel in earthly power and glory is to bring about death and destruction and the judgment of God. Now you see, dear congregation, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. That's the message of Revelation. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Man is not powerful and man is not wise. He is weak and he is foolish and he needs saving. He needs grace. He needs salvation. And we are the method or the means that the instruments God uses to save people, to bring them to Himself. I close with the illustration of Naaman the general. You ever thought about that man? He's at the top of the Syrian army. He's second to the king of Syria. He's his right-hand man. And the Bible says of that great general that he was a leper. He had a problem, didn't he? And he went to his king because some little servant girl to his wife had said to him, ah, if, if my master could only go to Elisha the prophet, he would cure him. And he goes to his king and he says, can you arrange this for me? And what can the king of Syria do? Can the king of Syria heal Naaman the Naaman the general? Of course not. The king of Israel gets the letter. I've sent Naaman the general to you so you can cure him of his leprosy. What can the king of Israel do for Naaman? Nothing. Nothing. And Naaman, of course, because he's such a great man, when he comes to Elisha the prophet eventually, Elisha doesn't even come out. He just says, go and wash, dip yourself in the Jordan, that dirty river, for seven times and you'll be clean. And he's enraged. Why is he enraged? He's just been told how to fix his problem, right? But he asserts himself. I thought he'd come out and wave his arms or do something magnificent because that's what I expect. You see, Naaman is a picture of humanity, of man, still in their pride, even when God shows them. 
what they must do. You must become like a child. You must just go down to this river and be dipped in it for seven times and when you come out you'll be clean. And he still refuses because Naaman is foolish. Naaman knows. Naaman is wise. No, no man is wise. We're all foolish. We all need to actually go into the river of the blood of the Lamb to be washed. And you can only do that through repentance and faith. And that's what Ahasuerus needed to do, failed to do. The pride of man, the arrogance of man. But the gospel is to save us and to bring us to hope and glory in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these small thoughts on these opening verses in Esther, this, this great little book in the Old Testament, a book where you're not even mentioned by name, and yet you're everywhere in the history of man. Oh, Father, you raise up kings and you bring them down to nothing because all the nations of the world are like sand in a bucket. They're nothing to you. And even tonight, they're nothing to you. You raise men up, you take men down. And isn't that a picture, Father, of what we once were like ourselves? We set ourselves against you, and you brought us down. You showed us what we're like. You revealed our hearts and minds to us. You showed us the tragedy of where we were going, the darkness of ourselves, and you gave us your light, and you gave us your life. And the history and the tragedy of man is that he is arrayed against you constantly. But you save sinners by grace. And we pray that we might each one of us know this great salvation that comes through such a great and glorious Savior, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for these thoughts that we've had. Now, Father, at the end of this day, this Lord's Day, we thank you for it. We pray that you sustain us this week as we go about our business. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be godly people in this world that is so filled with violence and wickedness. Help us not to be fearful and afraid, but to trust in the Lord God. So we praise you and thank you for these things and for each other. Commend ourselves to you now and ask your rich blessing upon us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray and ask these things. Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.